Thank you, Anders. Morning, everyone. Morning. Um, Anders mentioned that he's our pastor, but he's not one for very long. Um, uh, we had a different pastor just a few months ago. And um, before he left, we were going through Life of David. And we didn't get very far. David didn't even get to become a king. Uh, but once we started going through a few of the, of the psalms this, this summer, and, uh, and I received the honor to speak to you today, um, I thought we should look at one of the most difficult and probably most uh, important moments in David's life, which, uh, which uh, left a big mark on how the Bible sees him as a, as a figure. It is, of course, his encounter with Bathsheba, uh, which he reacts to in Psalm 51, which Viva read to us. Thank you, Viva. And the full story of this episode is found, found in 2 Samuel, chapters 11 and 12. So let us read some parts of it. So 2 Samuel, chapter 11, starting from verse 1. In the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel. And they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah. But David remained at Jerusalem. It happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house that he saw from, from the roof a woman bathing. And the woman was very beautiful. And David sent and inquired about the woman. And one said, is, is not this Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? So David sent messengers and took her, and she came to him, and he lay with her. With her. Now she had been purifying herself from her uncleanness. Then she returned to her house, and the woman conceived, and she sent and told David, I am pregnant. And then David sends, his, sends a letter to the battlefield. He asks uh, Uriah to be sent home uh, to try to get him to sleep with his wife. So, so that would hide David's sin. Uriah was much more moral than David was at that point and did nothing like it. The Bible says in verse 8 and 9 that he went out of the king's house, Uriah, and there followed him a present from the king. But Uriah slept at the door of the king's house with all the servants of his lord and did not go down to his house. David's neat plan was ruined because it could not be Uriah who could have made his wife pregnant then. So what could David do now? He sent Uriah back to the field of, of the war to get him killed, which, which he was, Uriah was killed, and God did not like this. And he sent prophet Nathan to David to, send him, to make him see the truth of what he had done. And Nathan told David a, sto a little story about the rich and the poor men and their sheep. Let's read it from uh, chapter 12, verses 1 to 16. And the Lord sent Nathan to David. He came to him and said to him, There are two men in a certain city, one, the one rich and the other poor. The rich had, man had many, very many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing but the one little lamb which he had bought. And he brought it up, and it grew up with him and with his children. It used to eat of his morsel and drink from his cup and lie in his arms. It was like a daughter to him. Now there came a traveler to the rich man, and he was in, unwilling to take one of his own flock or herd to prepare for the guest who had come to him. 
But he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. Then David's anger was greatly kindled against the man, and he said to Nathan, As the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die. And he shall restore the lamb fourfold, because he did this thing, and because he had no pity. Nathan said to David, You are the man. Thus said the Lord, the God of Israel, I anointed you king over Israel, and delivered you out of the hand of Saul. And I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your arms, and gave you the house of Israel and of Judah. And if this were too little, I would add to you as much more. Why have you despised the word of the Lord to do what is evil in his sight? You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword, and have taken his wife to be your wife, and have killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Now therefore the sword shall never depart from your house, because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will raise up evil against you out of your own house, and I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor, and he shall lie with your wives in the sight of the sun. For you did it secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel and before the sun. David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, The Lord also has put away your sin. You shall not die. Nevertheless, because by this deed you have utterly scorned the Lord, the child who is born to you shall die. Then Nathan went to his house, and the Lord afflicted the child that Uriah's wife bore to David, and he became sick. David therefore sought God on behalf of this child, and David fasted and went in and lay all night on the ground. It's probably around here that David writes Psalm 51, where he laments his sin and asks God to be gracious to him, to show him favor, to forgive him. He recognizes that he has sinned chiefly against God, even if his sin did involve other people. He recognizes that God can forgive him and make his heart clean, wash it thoroughly, and teach the truth to him. He asks God to do it, and God does there are still consequences for David's actions. The child dies, and David then returns to normal life, eats, drinks, and wears normal clothes, because the Lord decided not to save his child, so there's no point to continue asking for it. But because David has experienced true repentance, later God blesses David and Bathsheba's union, and they give birth to Solomon, who goes on to become the next king of Israel. This situation isn't ideal. But it's not the end of the world for David. We know that David continues to be a man after God's heart. And he keeps living close to God for the remainder of his fairly long life. We also know that we experience sin in our lives. And nearly every day there are occasions when we need to repent. So the question we must ask from, from this psalm is, what, what constitutes a true repentance? How can we come to God after we have sinned and receive this favor of forgiveness from Him to continue following Him? And there are three points from this psalm that I would like to, us to look at today, which will uh, teach us how to receive forgiveness from the Lord. They are, uh, God is the author of forgiveness. Second one is that once God cleanses you, you are clean indeed. And the third one would be doing what and how. So what we must do. And have a quick look uh, through the Psalm 51. One thing that you can notice from the language of it is that there's a lot of things there that God does and a lot of other things that David does. But notice the difference between the two. 
God is always the originator of all things, while David only answers to God. The only thing David originates is his sin. Let's have a look at, a bit closer. David starts the psalm with, Have mercy on me, O God, which is an action from God. And God's action continues, Blot out my transgressions, wash me and cleanse me. And then David's action starts, Against you only I have sinned. Then God's action again, and David's answer, Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. And it continues like that all through the psalm. David only authors his sin. Everything else he puts on God. And it's not only grammatically uh, this way. If you read the actual text, you see that David recognizes in verse 4, Against you, you only, have I sinned, and done what is evil in your sight. David has done wrong with God, so only God can truly forgive. In verse 14, he says, Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God. He asks God to, forgive, for, to deliver him, set him free from guilt, so he believes that only God has rights to do this, since he has sinned against him, and that only God is actually able to do this, because otherwise, why would you ask this? Even more, David is abs absolutely convinced that God will truly make him clean. He says so in verse 7. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. So there's no doubt in David's mind that this is the case. Why is that? Well, we know from 2 Samuel 12, 13, that Nathan has already told him, The Lord has also has put away your sin. You shall not die. Why then continue asking for forgiveness? John Colvin, uh, the 16th century theologian, writes in his commentary of, of Psalm 51 that David might be much re relieved by the announcement of the prophet, and yet he visited occasionally with fresh convictions influencing him to have recourse to the throne of grace. However rich and liberal the offers of mercy may be with God, which, which God extends to us, it is highly proper on our part that we should reflect upon the grievous dishonor which we have done to his name and be filled with due sorrow on account of it. Then our faith is weak and we cannot at once apprehend the full extent of divine mercy. So that there is no reason to be surprised that David should have once and again renewed his prayers for pardon, the more to confirm his belief in it. The truth is that we cannot properly pray for the pardon of sin until we have come to a persuasion that God will be reconciled to us. It is good practice to continue praying for forgiveness, to gain a deeper and fuller understanding of God's mercy. God has forgiven you straight away, but you might not and probably will not fully understand it just yet. It is worth it to return to it. How does God make sure that you are clean and properly clean? David mentions cleansing with hyssop. It was a, it's a small leafy shrub which was used in ceremonial uh, purification. Of course, David wasn't just referring to ceremony, the ritual. He was referring to something that this ritual represented, the sprinkling of the blood. In the Old Testament, there was the blood of the animals. Jedi mentioned last week that how they were used to atone for people's sins. In the New Testament, we have the blood of Jesus, who, which is poured out over us on the cross. David prophetically directs our gaze on Christ on the cross. In the same commentary, John Colwyn writes this, The mention which is here made of purging with hyssop and the washing or sprinkling teaches 
us in all our prayers for the pardon of sin to have our thoughts directed to the great sacrifice by which Christ has reconciled us to God. Without shedding of blood, says the writer of Hebrews, is no remission. And this, which was intimated by God to be the ancient church under figures, has been fully made known by the, knowing, by the coming of Christ. The sinner, if he would find mercy, must look at the sacrifice of Christ, which expiated the sins of the world. For it were vain to imagine that God, the judge of the world, would receive us again into his favor in any other way than through a satisfaction made to his justice. So it is the sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross that allows us to be cleansed from our sin. And it is the faithfulness of God that allows me to be so sure about it that there is absolutely no, mind, no doubt in our minds that our sin has been forgiven. Even more, God does not only cleanse us, he also restores us. Read with me verses 7 to 12 in Psalm 51. It says, Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins, and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence, and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the, jo the joy of your salvation, and uphold me with a willing spirit. These are beautiful words, full of encouragement for us who know that God fulfills his promises. So what then is left for us to do? We mentioned already that it is healthy to keep praying for pardon, to gain a deeper and fuller understanding of it. We also saw that when praying we ought to look at Christ on the cross, enduring sacrifice for us, which is the key for our forgiveness. Other than that, all, this, all that is left for us to do is to receive it and say thank you. Look at David's words in verses 14 and 15. David says, Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise. That is all David wants to do. In fact, he even says in verses 16 and 17, For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with the burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. So there's nothing that we can do to earn God's forgiveness. It's already there for us, prepared at the cross. So anything that we might want to do to pursue and earn forgiveness, apart from just receiving it with thanksgiving, is futile. So let's do that and let's sing a song to God. Let's give him thanks. <laughs>